Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Tuesday. It's my favorite time of the week, so it's time for another installment of Nightlight Part 2. Welcome, everyone. Alexa, bring me a best-selling author on out-of-place artifacts. And just like that, David Brody suddenly appears to discuss his latest captivating book, Romerica. And if you want to learn more about our guest, you can visit his website, davidbrodybooks.com. Hi, Dave. How are you? Barbara, is David muted? There you go. How you doing? Thank you for having me on. It's good to be with you, Mark. Yeah. Glad, glad you're here. Um, yeah, so... Romerica is the 11th book in your Templars in America series. Um, I got another fascinating international political espionage thriller book, whatever genre you want to put it in. You have a little bit of everything in there, biblical history, history. ancient history of uh, America as well. Uh, terrific book, and well, we're going to spend um, most of the evening discussing it. And you know, let's start off with um, um, basically the opening with uh, Crane Castle overlooking Plum Island. Is, is, is this Plum Island the one where Dr. Hannibal Lecter is going to be sent with the uh, deal he made with the senator from Tennessee? No, that, that's Plum Island on Long Island. So this is, oh, uh, this is up on the north, shore of, yes, the north shore of Massachusetts, right where the Merrimack River empties into the Atlantic, which is really the, 
you know, pretty much the highway. Uh, if, you, if you came across in ancient times, came across the Atlantic, and you wanted to go inland in the New England region, you came up the Merrimack River. So, so this book, Mark, you mentioned it's the 11th book in the series. This one was, came together really quick. Normally, it takes me about six months or so to write one of these books. There are about 300 pages you know, between um, writing and rewriting. And whatnot. This one, it was, I, I kept track, it was 101 days. And, of course, part of that was because during a pandemic, what else are you going to do, right? you got nothing else to do besides sit in, sit in your office and, and do paperwork. So I did a lot of writing. But also, it was one of those stories that just sort of poured itself out of me. I stumbled upon a newspaper article from about four years ago talking about uh, after a big storm, a husband and wife went out to Plum Island, which is, again, a barrier island in, on the North Shore of Massachusetts. Uh, after a storm, they go, they went metal detecting regularly. They, this is what they did as a hobby. And they went out there, and they started getting all these hits. It was crazy. They found over 20 Roman-era coins all clustered together uh, near this, this, this stone jetty. It's called a groin. Um, and, you know, the newspaper wrote about it, and I said, well, that's sort of interesting, but it turns out that periodically over the years, all along the North Shore of Massachusetts, these Roman coins kept turning up. And so, you know, you know me, Mark, you, I've done your show a number of times, and you've read my books, mm-hmm. and you know I like nothing more than historical mystery. So I said, well, you know, what's going on here? How come we have so many Roman coins? And if you, if you ask the, the, the traditional historians, the, you know, the academic types, they say things like, well, you know, maybe a seagull picked up the coins in Europe and flew across the Atlantic and dropped them on the beach. And I'm thinking, well, that, that's, one, that's one pretty impressive seagull, 22 coins, <laughs> dropping them all, all together after 3,000 miles. You know, that's just silly. Or sometimes you hear, well, maybe, you know, a grandfather wanted to entertain his grandkids. They went to the beach and he buried the coins and let the grandkids find them. And, okay, so maybe he, he happened to have a couple of pennies and nickels and dimes in the change compartment of his car, and that's what he did, but he wouldn't use Roman coins, right? And then you hear, well, maybe in ancient times they used Roman coins as ballast, like in colonial ships. Like, that makes no sense. Have you ever heard of, you know, coins being used as ballast? You've got stones and rocks no. and whatever. So, anyway, so you start hearing all these things, and you roll your eyes and say, well, how about maybe there were Roman ships that came across, either they came on purpose or they got blown off course, and maybe they, cra- they, they got shipwrecked off the coast of Plum Island, where, by the way, there are literally hundreds of shipwrecks because of just the way that area is with all the, the eddies and the, and the tides coming in and the rivers coming out and, and the need for shelter after storms. There's all these shipwrecks. And maybe there's shipwrecks, and after a big storm, the, the shipwreck, which sits on the bottom of the, of the ocean, gets disturbed and the coins get dislodged and they wash ashore and people find them. You know, so, so this is where it all started. I started looking at these things and it turns out that there are literally dozens of Roman era artifacts scattered around the East Coast, uh, the Ohio River Valley, Mark, your neck of the woods, uh, down in mm-hmm. South America, and they all cluster to right around the second century A.D. It's not just Roman era. It's all second century A.D. It's almost like you know, they all sort of tell the same story. So, you know, I went down that rabbit hole, and I was really surprised at all the different artifacts that, that you know, we'll talk about them tonight, but all the different artifacts we found. And it turns out also, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but, you know, they also tie back to 
things other people have written about, people like Rick Osman, who does, has done a lot of research out in the Ohio River Valley about things mm-hmm. like um, you know, the Bar Kopka uprising in Israel in the early 2nd century, and all sorts of interesting historical things that are tied in. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is the reason this book came together so quickly in only 101 days is because the pieces fit together really neatly, and that doesn't always happen. When it does happen, it tends to mean that we're on the right track, that I'm on the right track. So that's sort of the overview of all of this. Uh, we can get into the nitty-gritty of it, but that's, that was, it, was exci- it was an exciting book to, to research and to write because it came together so quickly. And uh, you can probably hear the excitement in my voice. I'm pretty happy with the way it came out. Oh, I, I, I think it's a uh, terrific uh, book. I, uh, aside from... You know, it has like a personal interest to me because it's, uh, it's somewhat local. It it, it was just uh, an exciting read, interesting. Um, I think in a little bit, uh, you know, we get into the number of the antiquarians who wrote about the same thing uh, uh, 200 years ago. So uh, this theory has been around, uh, you know, the evidence has been there for a very long time. Yeah, and more, I, I think when you talk about the antiquarians writing about it, uh, you saw a lot of it in the early 1800s, and most of it was out in the Ohio River Valley, not so much in New England. There was some, but more than more than half, I would say, were in, you know, Kentucky, Tennessee, Indiana, Ohio, um, West Virginia, you know, lots of artifacts turning up that just seem to defy common sense. And you saw a lot of historians back then writing about, you know, an ancient tribe or, you know, who could it be, uh, especially because a lot of these artifacts had were, had Hebrew writing on them. And so that, that sort of gave rise to the ancient tribe thing. And then there was a lot of people in more recent times who theorized Welsh, Prince Madoc, you know, maybe something going on with that, but he's late. Madoc is later than 2nd century. He's either 6th century or 11th century, mm-hmm. or 12th century, depending on which Madoc you get, but that didn't really fit. So, but yeah, you're right. This has been, this has been going on for a couple hundred years now, this, this, this mystery of why all these European slash Roman uh, artifacts, Mediterranean artifacts, let's say, in the Ohio River Valley, uh, they just keep coming up. People keep finding them. So, you know, what, what's the story? I, I, I think I might have stumbled upon the answer, but maybe I'm wrong. But there, whether whether I'm right or wrong, there definitely is a story here that someone someday is going to figure out. Yeah, and since you know, we're on the uh, topic at the moment, moment about the antiquarians. Uh, you know, you're quoting the this of Tennessee Supreme Court in the 1820s is you know, commenting on um, some Roman coins. Um, in what? Well, you know, just in Caleb Atwater's 1820 publication, 
he, he does write uh, several Roman coins said to have been found in a cave near Nashville in Tennessee bearing date not many centuries after the Christian era have excited some interest among antiquarians. So there you know, we, we have our very own Nashville reporter who could um, look into that. But you know, there, you know, you, know, you you are documenting um, you know, many sources. Uh, there's the what 1823 drawing of the Hanukkah fort. Yeah, so, all the stuff is 200 years old. So for for those of your listeners who may not be familiar with my work, so the books are historical fiction, but. The key part of that is historical. They're, they're, they really are based on historical artifacts, historical sites. The story itself is a modern-day adventure story, a thriller, and, of course, that part is fictionalized. But the, but the artifacts that trigger, that drive the entire story are actual artifacts. Um, you know, and we, we can't say for certain you know, how old they are. Some of them we know for certain. A coin obviously has a date on it where they came from. Again, coins we know, some things we don't know. Um, but a lot of these have science behind them, whether it's uh, optically, spect- uh, optically stimulated luminescence testing or, or carbon dating or other kind of science behind them. So we do know the age of some of these. Um, you mentioned the, the Hanukkah fort, and we'll, we'll talk about the, sort of the tie-in between these Roman-era artifacts and possible uh, Jewish connection later on in the conversation, I'm guessing. But that, for example, was drawn in 1823 by the Army Corps of Engineers. And so, you know, some, a lot of these were, were, were documented by the Smithsonian or by other governmental authorities. And so the provenance behind a lot of these artifacts is pretty solid. It's not like, you know, you, your brother-in-law's best friend's ex-girlfriend found a coin and, and now you're going to run around saying it must be ancient. You know, who knows where that came from? These are these the provenance on these provenance on these is is much clearer, and so uh, you can have one or two artifacts are called as you know out of place artifacts, and they can sometimes just be modern uh, modern mistakes. They could just be some somebody dropped something in the woods or whatever. But when you start having as many as we found in this particular book, and couple that with the really uh, tight provenance of a lot of these. Then you start saying, well, this can't just be coincidence. It can't just be um, outliers. Something really is going on. There's a story that these artifacts tell. And so that's where we are. And and as an author and as a researcher, that's when I know I've sort of hit critical mass and I can go ahead and write the book is when I've gotten to the point. And this, by the way, this is my legal training. So I'm a lawyer by trade. Um, uh, I've been practicing law for 33 years. And one of the things that we were trained, of course, in law school is how to analyze and identify and weigh and critique evidence. You know, so that's, that's what I'm trained in. So for me, this is always a question about is there enough evidence? Do the artifacts speak loudly enough so that I can make my case? If I had a hypothetical jury, could I win the case? And in, in my case, my jury is the readers. Can I give the readers enough evidence, enough artifacts, to convince them that the story is real. And when I get to that point, then I know it's okay to go ahead with 
you know, with the story I want to write. And if I can't get to that point, then I need to go back to the drawing board and, and try something else totally different, either a, a new story or new artifacts, whatever. But as I said earlier, in this case, it came together really quickly. There were so many Roman-era artifacts, and they told the same story that I'm pretty sure I'm on the right track with it. Okay, well, you know, we have, you know, the couple examples, <clears throat> documented examples from a couple hundred years ago. Um, I know Lee Pennington's written some articles for Ancient American Magazine that cover uh, Roman coins uh, being found near the, uh, like, Falls of Ohio you mentioned Lee Pennington because he he's been he's been researching this for a really long time. Mark, is it okay yeah. if I if I sort of come at this the way that I learned about it, and that might explain to the readers where I'm coming from on it, as opposed to oh, going sure. yeah that, yeah that. just because I, I think I think it will explain uh, sort of um, with an establishing shot if this were a movie where how I came upon this, but I came upon this through a book that was written by Rick Osman um, uh, probably 10 years ago called The Graves of the Golden Bear. And Rick is a researcher out in Indiana. And Rick basically had a theory, and it's a, it's a fascinating theory, um, that uh, – you, 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 of course, you know Rick really well, right, Mark? You, yes. You're, you're, yes. Yeah, okay, okay. So Rick has a, a fascinating theory that um, there was a, 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 a Roman uh, legion, the Ninth Legion, that had been stationed – in England along Hadrian's Wall, and that this legion in the second century basically disappeared from history. No one's ever quite certain whatever happened to them. They were, you know, one day they were in, in England, and then 10 years later they were nowhere to be found, and something happened to them. Rick theorized, and he came across, upon this theory because he was uh, doing a lot of research in, in, in Indiana, and he, he found what he believes to be a series of Roman forts stringing across, going east-west, basically parallel to the Ohio River, basically crossing the Ohio River Valley. And Rick believes, and this book goes into it, that it was this Ninth Legion that uh, left England uh, in, in the second century and for whatever reason came across to America, ended up in the Ohio River Valley. And this was sort of the, the start of it. And it's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's that that sort of got me started. And so I was open to the idea of second-century Roman exploration because of Rick's book. I did something a little different. Rick has them coming straight from England immediately over to America. I found evidence in writings that indicate the Ninth Legion left England and went to Israel to help in something called the Bar Kopka Rebellion, which is... 132 A.D., I believe. Don't quote me exactly. Sometime around 130 A.D. It was was the second Jewish rebellion. The first one, of course, was in 70 A.D. when King Herod uh, Herod put down the rebellion. And and, and then a couple Mm -hmm. generations later, a guy named Simon Bar Kopka led a second rebellion. And that's where the story of uh, Masada, the the massive suicide uh, out in the desert, um, made famous by the by the Israeli uh, uh, security agency called the Mossad. It's named after the Masada. But all that happened during the Bar Kopka uprising. Anyway, the, the Ninth Legion apparently was in Israel during this time period, and some of the coins that were found in the Ohio River Valley are actually Bar Kopka 
coins, literally uh, Bar Kafka's face on the coins. So one of the possibilities that I came up with is that the Ninth Legion went to Israel to put down the rebellion. We know that's true. Perhaps that during this rebellion, they somehow became allied with some factions of the rebellion. And we know from books such as the Copper Scroll of Qumran uh, and the, you know, the Copper Scroll, the, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, lists uh, treasures buried during this uprising, hidden away from the Romans, uh, totaling, I, I believe the total was, uh, do you remember the, how much it was, Mark? Uh, like $1.5 billion in today's dollars. So the Copper Scroll yeah. of Qumran lists $1.5 billion in today's dollars of treasures. So what if, never been found, by the way, what if, the, the legion commanders or lieutenants or whoever, uh, and whatever faction of uh, Jewish uprisers decided to collectively together to take this treasure and get the heck out of the war-torn Israel and go find safe haven someplace. And maybe that place was across the Atlantic. And maybe they came, ended up in the Ohio River Valley. And that would explain not only the Roman era, and the Roman coins and Roman artifacts, but also the number of Jewish-related artifacts of that same time period. So that's sort of where I go with this, and I can't say for certain that that's what happened, but the pieces fit together. And so looking at it through that prism allows us to see all these these coins, all these artifacts, all these Hebrew uh, artifacts in particular. They all all sort of make sense if you look at it as a second-century... Roman slash Jewish excursion across the Atlantic with the treasures as a way to get away from whoever else wanted those treasures in the Mediterranean and in Europe. And so, so that's why I sort of came at it from that angle. And, and if we look at it that way, then the pieces fit together. So now if you want to start talking about the individual pieces, now we understand how, how they fit together. Yeah, and, you know, you're saying that... Um, after a certain date, and I think Rick said uh, they kind of disappear from history about 117 A.D. Uh, if they go to um, right, I, I haven't, I haven't been sticking it, around. I have them going from England to Israel around 130 A.D. and then yeah, disappearing after uh, that. So I've got them going another. 15, 18 years, whatever, and they yeah, eventually and, they, and, they put down the uprising, and then they disappear. Because there is evidence yeah, that and, they they may have been in, in stationed in Jerusalem. Okay, so ha- having these, you know, like uh, you know what Caleb Atwater said, you know, a couple cent, what do you say, you know, not long after the Christ, Christian era started. Okay, a couple hundred years. Yeah, uh, that fits in the time frame. I think some of the photos that uh, Lee Pennington uses in his articles you know, are that you know, second, third century uh, right. A.D. Uh, the coins that uh, you're showing in your book and uh, are all, what do you say, uh, clustered around. You know, several generations of after several generations after um, 
in the initial 70 AD uprising, and they come eventually make their way to America. They have some of the you know, they were able to date the coins with you know, like the Roman emperors. Right. Uh, the, 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 uh, the coins are easy to date because whoever's whoever face is on the coin, you know, you know what year that emperor reigned, mm-hmm. and so that's the date of the coin. That's easy. And yeah. and like you said, most of the coins are second century. There are some coins that are a little bit later, and from that I deduce that there probably was a little bit of trade going back and forth. So these guys came over mm-hmm. here. You know, there would have been a lot of them, obviously, and they came over and they had, you know, tons of money. And so other Romans would probably have wanted, if they knew about them being here, would have come back to trade every few years and 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 help relieve them of some of that gold and silver that they that they took happily. So, yeah. so that's that's why we have some some later coins as well. But yeah, um, yeah I, I was just going to say, yeah, you have a few generations in there from when they first appear until what the yeah they stop. At, you know, at, at a certain emperor's reign, and, and they aren't you know, just one scattered here and there from a wide span of emperors. They're, you know, they're kind of concentrated within just a couple hundred years of each other. So, you know, I think what you're saying is, you know, several crossings over several generations. It makes sense, right? And uh, you know, we we uh, we tend not to open our minds to the possibility of ancient peoples coming across the Atlantic. But the reality was that look, the Romans learned how to build their ships from the Phoenicians because the Phoenicians were kicking their butt in the Punic Wars, you know, around 300 BC in that time range. And the Romans eventually figured out how to copy their ships. But the Phoenician ships were way bigger than what Columbus sailed over here with. So the Phoenicians were amazing seafarers. They, the Romans basically stole that technology. And so the ships that we're talking about, even around uh, 2,000 years ago, were much bigger than Columbus had. And we know the Phoenicians were able to navigate around the tip of Africa, up to the North Sea. Uh, they, were, you know, they, were, they were out in the open ocean. They weren't just in the Mediterranean. So uh, it's not at all a stretch to think that they could have crossed the Atlantic, either intentionally or just blown off course, uh, and then we, we find other and these artifacts. So if we if we if we if we go into it thinking the possibility of the Barkopka uprising being related to these artifacts, we start looking at these artifacts in more detail. For example, the Back Creek Stone in Tennessee, um, which for a long time people didn't understand the translation. They thought it was Paleo Cherokee or something, and then. Uh, Henrietta Mertz, a researcher, flipped it over on its head. It was upside down, displayed upside down at the, at the Smithsonian all those years. And it, it, it translates to um, a comet for the Jews. And it turns out that a comet for the Jews is actually the battle cry of the Bar Kopka revolt. And the reason for that, by the way, is Bar Kopka means son of the star. So a comet for the Jews would be a, you know, the star is the comet. So if this artifice, Back Creek Stone, by the way, which was artifacts found with it were carbon dated to the second century, and it directly ties to the Bar Kopka uprising because the translation is the same as the battle cry. And so we've got the, a, a coincidence of date, a coincidence of slogan, uh, a coincidence of location because there's other artifacts found around near there. 
the, the, the burial mound, which had the body, which had the back creek stone in it, there was one body turned sort of in a different direction than the Native American bodies, skeletons found nearby. There's, there's so much just about that one artifact. But there's, again, other Jewish artifacts nearby, some, for example, called the Decalogue Stone in Newark, New York, uh, which has the Ten Commandments described around it in Hebrew. And the wooden platform that that rested on was carbon dated to around 135 A.D., the exact time of the Bar Kopka uprising. So there's, a, there's some really strong evidence indicating something related to the Bar Kopka uprising was happening in the Ohio River Valley in the early parts of the second century. So, you know, there has to, there has to be an answer to this. It can't just be people shrugging their shoulders. We, we got, we, there's a story to tell, and, you know, it's up to us to figure out what it is. All of the examples you just reeled off, um, that sounds clearly like a pattern, not just one artifact makes some kind of coincidence. Right. There's some, some, something was definitely going on over a uh, you know, several generations of transatlantic crossings. I, you know, I think you make a, a really good point yeah, there. Mark, you, 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 you brought, Mark, you brought up the, the I don't want to get, I don't want to lose this because it was a good point you brought up and we didn't really elaborate on it. The Hanukkah fort, the drawing, if, if your listeners yeah. are, are able to do so, if you go on, on the website um, where the images are listed, it, I think it's the last image listed before my books, but it's, it, it, it's a fort that was drawn by the Army Corps of Engineers and the fort looks exactly like uh, a nine-branched uh, Hanukkah menorah topped by an oil lamp. And if you know the story of Hanukkah, basically there wasn't enough oil in the, in the, in the menorah to last more than one day, and the miracle was it lasted nine days. And so, yeah, so the symbols of Hanukkah are the menorah and the oil lamp. Well, this fort is designed, it's, it's literally exactly a menorah and an oil lamp. It, there's just no way that would have happened accidentally. It's it clearly a reflection of some ancient fort design that is meant to remind people of or pay homage to the Hanukkah holiday. So again, ancient Jews, along, along with the Ten Commandments on the Decalogue Stone, and along with the, bar, the Back Creek Stone, and there's just so much there. And again, they're all clustered in the Ohio River Valley, and they all seem to date back to that time period. But I, I don't want to forget that you, you brought it up. I didn't want, and I, hopefully people, hope, hopefully listeners can go to the website and look at some of these images. But that that uh, that Hanukkah fort is pretty amazing. Every time I look at it, it makes me grin because I like, wow, look at that! It looks so much like a menorah with an oil lamp on the top. It's unbelievable. Okay, so since since we're talking about um, you know the Holy Land. Rome, and you mentioned the Phoenicians. Um, they have to cross the Atlantic to get here. So, you know, you, one of the centerpieces of your book, uh, Romerica, is, you know, delving into, um, 
the ship uh, designs from you know, uh, up to about the 6th century A.D. You have the... Uh, how do you pronounce it? A trire... Trireme. A trireme. Yeah, Tri- so, trireme. Right, so the... Let's talk so about the, that. They, the, so the, again, the Romans somehow. copied the ship design from the from the Phoenicians, and most of these ships were, were designed for, for battle a close quarter battle in the Mediterranean. They weren't necessarily perfect or even designed for ocean travel. They were they, they had sails, so you could definitely sail them, but they also were oar powered because in, in, in battle you wanted to be able to have your your, your your oarsmen, you know, maneuvering you around and getting in position to broadside and whatever. So um so in 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 the story because I have other angles which I won't talk about now and ruin the story for people. I needed the boat to be a trireme. Practically speaking, if Romans did come across, it probably would not have been a trireme. A trireme it could have made it across. We know that Julius Caesar sailed triremes up to the English Channel. So we know they they they, they were capable of ocean travel, but you wouldn't want to do that with a trireme. It, it's just not the best design for, for that kind of ocean travel. So it could have been blown off course accidentally, but practically speaking, they probably would have come across in, in a galley or something. But for plot reasons, I had to be a, a trireme, and I, again, I don't want to get into why that is because it will ruin the story for people. But um, the, the interesting thing is, is that the, Ro- or the takeaway, I guess, is the Romans essentially captured a Phoenician uh, trireme back in the I think it was the 3rd century B.C., and then copied it. And the funny story is they didn't realize that they had to let the wood uh, season before you, before you put it in the water, and the wood was too green and the thing sank. <laughs> so they eventually figured out you got to let the wood season for a few years before you put the thing in the water. But eventually the Romans figured out how to make it all work, and uh, and here we are. So Okay. And the... Yeah, you know, possibility of you know, this really happening uh, does have a pre- uh, precedence with uh, Longfellow's "The Wreck of the Hesperus." You mentioned that. Yeah. So the well, the Hesperus is a colonial ship. So um, what I think what you're referring to is um, the fact that all along the North Shore of Massachusetts, you know, especially in colonial times, there were uh, all these all these uh, shipwrecks. So the Hesperus actually is a little further south than Plum Island and Newburyport. It's along Gloucester, uh, and, and the final stanza reads, I always love this, such was the wreck of the Hesperus in the midnight and the snow. Christ save us all from a death like this. On the reef of Norman's Woe, Norman's Woe was the name of the reef, uh, you know, un- underwater reef that that ships coming around the point on Cape Ann would always run aground against. Uh, and uh, there's a similar, and you actually asked this at the beginning of the interview, I never really got to answer it. There's a similar uh, reef off of Plum Island called Emerson Rocks, and again, mm-hmm. during storms, ships would come around the the around to the end of the island and sort of cut into the mouth what they thought was the mouth of the Ipswich River what they didn't realize was at the tip of the island underwater was this Emerson Rocks and many ships were scuttled on those rocks and 
And I started the interview by talking about how 20-odd coins were found four years ago on the northern part of Plum Island after a big storm. But on the southern side of Plum Island, near these Emerson Rocks, periodically uh, Roman coins have been found and also Roman, what looks like the remains of of ancient ships, I can't say the Roman, I don't know that for a fact, ancient shipwrecks that that could be uh, pre-colonial have washed ashore as well. But that area, uh, both uh, the wreck of the Hesperus at, at Norman's Row, but also uh, along Plum Island at Emerson Rocks, those are two areas on the north shore of Massachusetts that are famous for their shipwrecks. Well, I enjoyed your dramatic uh, poetry reading. <laughs> I could have given you like 12 stanzas. I have them in front of me here, but I figured one was probably enough for, for the listeners for tonight. <laughs> but, so, and it, you, know, it, it, you know, we yeah, do have some you know, very real possibilities of you know, situation like this happening, you know, along the rocky New England shores. But, it, you know, you are also including uh, the, the amphorae found in South America as well. Uh, you know, I've seen some other, uh, you know, reports on that. So there we are back to this pattern again of these artifacts, you know, where they kind of dated to about the same time period. But it's all Roman uh, artifacts found in South America as well. Right. So what you're talking about is something called the Bay of Jars in Rio de Janeiro. And what that is is, is – hundreds of these amphora, amphorae is the plural, shipping containers. So they were called shipping, they're basically you know, ceramic jugs. They were called the shipping containers of the ancient world. And um, there's so many of them in this, in this, in this bay in Rio de Janeiro that the, that the locals call it the Bay of Jars. And so eventually um, a group of scientists went down there, actually a guy from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, had, had developed a Sort of a sonar, um, a way, a way to, to to look at the ocean bottom, um, a sonar system, which is still used by underwater archaeologists today. Anyway, bottom line is that they they did thermoluminescence testing on on these amphorae, and it came out again second century Roman era second Roman style second century, and then similar amphorae were found off the coast of Maine in Sistine Bay. Um, and they match the ones in um, in Brazil, and again the style and the and the dating of those at Iberian Peninsula dating, but again second or third century. So uh, you know, and 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 then you talk to the to the traditional historians, and they say, well, maybe a colonial ship had a bunch of ancient Phoenician amphorae and dumped them overboard. Like, well, why would a colonial ship have you know, at that time, 1,500-year-old clay amphorae. Like, why? How did they get them, and why would they have them? And it just makes no sense, you know? Like, And then if they right. had them, why would they dump them overboard? It just makes just no sense. And so 
and, and, and there's also uh, uh, the other the other thing that's in, in South America is actually in Mexico, Central America, is 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 a, a terracotta head, and um, right. that also date that also dates back again second century. It's uh, a, a terracotta head that was found uh, in, beneath the floor of uh, a, a Mexican pyramid, and we know the pyramid was built, I think, in the 12th century. So the head has to be older than that, pre-contact, pre-Columbus. And, and the head has a beard, and the Native Americans didn't have beards, and the, the, the fashion of the hairstyle and the hat that's on it is, is, according to the experts, second century. And then again, optically stimulated luminescence was done on the artifact, second century. So we have a second century Roman head, terracotta head, found underneath the you know, the stone floor of a pyramid that predates Columbus. So, again, somehow that made its way over here. So that in and of itself is fascinating. But once again, and I keep repeating myself, we have the same second century date. It's not just Roman era. It always seems to be second century Roman era, which tells me that was sort of the, you know, the prime time period of these excursions or this one excursion with a few on either side of it, the main excursion. That's the cluster we're finding. Okay, and, and I've been hearing this uh, thermoluminescent testing. Uh, it seems like it's pretty accurate. It, so it, it it can be if you have an artifact like this, it, it it's it's very accurate. Um, we're using mm-hmm. it more and more now out in the field. I know that you've had you know Dennis Stone on your show many times, and America Stonehenge Mystery Hill up in New Hampshire. It, I've just been part of a group that we did testing up there. And it can be accurate or sometimes not so much. It really depends on the sample. And you don't know that until you get the sample back to the laboratory and analyze it. There has to be a certain amount of quartz or a certain amount of other material. But, yes, if if, if it's a good sample, it can be very accurate. If it's not a good sample, then you almost have to punt and start over again. But in these particular cases that I'm talking about, these these samples were very, uh, very datable. And so mm-hmm. um, essentially what it measures, optically stimulated luminescence, it measures when the last time was that the, either the stone or the dirt uh, was exposed to sunlight. So you, you have to get into, if you're, if you're talking about a, a stone chamber, for example, you pull the stone away and you get dirt from behind the stone uh, that presumably has been blocked from sunlight since the construction of the chamber and you then determine how long it's been since that dirt saw sunlight, and that gives you the date of the chamber. So uh, similar technologies used for these stone artifacts. Okay. So a lot of Romerica centers on uh, Cam and Astarte's take her to college, and that's where... They encounter all these artifacts, but um, you, know, you have photos of them in, in your book. You know, uh, Rick has them in uh, his book. Uh, some of the uh, <clears throat> editions of Ancient American Magazine with you know that Lee wrote his, his articles. But uh, you know, let's look at a couple. Of, of the places that you mentioned, there's um, 
Um, you know, the the falls of Ohio. Uh, you know, Rick's talked about uh, that location when he was on with us, and um, yeah, that's a fascinating yeah. that's a fascinating uh, location. Um, yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, it's 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 really it's really cool, and it it's especially so, and I didn't realize this. Um, it's basically it's Louisville, Kentucky. And and across the Ohio River, on the other side of the river, is Clarksville, Indiana. And so that's basically where the falls of the Ohio are. Essentially, what it is, it's you know, it's a waterfall, and and like it says, it's essentially a, a, a an area of, of of waterfalls where the where the topography drops off. And in colonial times, because it was hard to get through there, a lot of pioneers had to stop and sort of wait for the local guides to come and bring them across or bring them down. And because of that, a village grew up around there. It was a natural stopping point. Okay, we got to the falls. Let's stop and wait, and we'll camp out here or whatever. But it, it goes back thousands of years. It's an old Native American gathering spot because there was a good area to fish and, and, and whatnot. But what, what I found fascinating is it's called Clarksville because um, the founder of it was – George Rogers Clark, who's the brother of William Clark of Lewis and Clark fame. And this family, in addition to being um, explorers, uh, were also avid amateur historians. And they did a lot of digging and researching, excavating. And and it was George Rogers Clark who wrote a lot about this stuff in the early 1800s and wrote about Roman armor, Roman fortresses near this area. Um, you know, it was it was he that was documenting a lot of this, the things that you talked about in the early 1800s. The antiquarians were documenting. It was him. A lot of it was was he. Sorry, a lot of it was he. And and again, even back then, talking about how this all dated back to the Roman era. A lot of it was Welsh in addition, and and that sort of makes sense if if we think about the Ninth Legion being stationed in England they would have had a, a Welsh contingency with them. And so the language they might have used when they got here was Welsh. There's something called the Brandenburg Stone, um, which is mm-hmm. written in Welsh, which basically is a, is a, is a, the translation has to do with dividing land up amongst the heirs, which again is a, is a English slash Welsh custom. Um, but it really is it, this area around Louisville, Kentucky and Clarksville, Indiana, where we find a cluster of these coins and and armor and fortresses all relating back that's that's sort of the the mother load of everything and I just found it was very interesting that it relates to the Lewis and Clark expedition and the Clark family um, that, that all seems to you know it's always round up the usual suspects as they say uh, almost as if when Lewis and Clark were going on their expedition further you know up the up the Missouri River that they were looking for other evidence that brother George Rogers Clark had discovered earlier uh, uh, in, in Clarksville and that the younger brother was going up looking for more evidence of these European explorers who might have come across earlier. Okay, and I have some harrowing scenes at the controversial... Burroughs Cave, uh, kind of working the King Juba legend. Uh, what's 
what did you find interesting about yeah, that, so Bur- that, that aspect? Uh, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead, finish. Oh, oh no, I, I, so I, I was just like, yeah, what, uh, yeah how, how does th- this King Juba legend fit in with Romerico? So I, I don't, well, I, it, it does indirectly. So I, I assume that you've talked about Burroughs Cave on your show before, and for those listeners who yeah. may not be familiar with it, it's um, it, it's this cave in southern Illinois uh, that was discovered in the 1970s by a guy named Russell Burroughs, and he proceeded to pull out of the cave, I don't know, in the neighborhood of 5,000 artifacts. And the artifacts are all over the place as far as style and as far as uh, you know, eth- uh, origins in the sense that some are Egyptian, some are Greek, some are Hebrew, some are Phoenician. So, I mean, it's, it's a, some are Northern, Af- Northern uh, African. Uh, it's, it's a crazy mismatch of artifacts. And it's sort of hard to figure out you know, what the story behind them is. And, and a lot of historians think that they were, they were fakes, that, that Russell Burroughs basically you know, produced these in his basement. I, I happen to think that's not the case. I think there's too many of them, and they're too elaborate, and they're too historically accurate for one person to have done these all in his basement. He wasn't all that educated, Russell, and I. And this was you know, the days before the internet. It would have been hard to get some of the historical details correct that he did. Um, but anyway, the, one of the theories is that uh, King Juba, who was the um, the grandson of Cleopatra and Mark Antony, and he ruled in the African nation of Mauritania in the first century. One one of the theories is that it was uh, before the Roman Emperor Caligula could come down and basically take all the money from Juba and his and his and his people that they they got out of Dodge. They fled and they took a ship and they took all the all the Mauritanian wealth and they went across with their sort of. Uh, a rainbow coalition of, of, of merchants and residents who lived on this at this trading area, and they went across and, and worked their way up the Mississippi River from the Gulf of Mexico and into southern Illinois and, and created this this settlement, and that's what these um, artifacts are from. But I thought maybe it's a little bit later. Maybe instead of being first century King Juba, it's second century Ninth Legion. That maybe these artifacts, and again, if you're part of the Ninth Legion. It was the, the Ninth Legion, even though it was Roman, it was based in, in, in Hispaniola, the Iberian Peninsula. And so you would have had uh, members of the Legion who represented all the, all the countries of origin I just mentioned, Phoenician, uh, Mediterranean, Greek, Hebrew, African. They all would have been part of this Legion, and they all perhaps could have contributed to, to these artifacts. And so start looking at these artifacts that were found in Burroughs Cave, and I tied them all into the story. Some of them are Roman, some of them are, are you know African heads and 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 Egyptian carvings and and whatnot. But they, in the story, the the, the characters theorize that perhaps this is more evidence. Again, there's more second century. These these artifacts are first, second, third century. No one's quite sure exactly, but definitely within within the margin of error of being second century artifacts. Uh, and, and so instead of being King Juba, it could just as easily be Ninth Legion coming across and you know leaving evidence of their 
of their culture, of their, these artifacts of evidence of their culture, their history, uh, some kind of repository of their belief systems, whatever they would have done, you know, almost an ancient museum. Um, but this area in southern Illinois is not too far off from where all the other artifacts were found uh, a little further east of that. Oh, it's a, yeah, and you have some um, an in, interesting scene. Uh, oh, a couple interesting scenes there. It's, we don't have to go into detail to. Uh, oh, yeah, but the the bat scene was fun. Huh? There's a really cool bat that, scene. I really it, enjoyed yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was very. Uh, well done. Like, Thank you. Just, just, I like it. Yeah, for the listeners who haven't read my books, you know, again, there's a lot of history here. There's no doubt about it. But hopefully, it's a roller coaster ride. Also, I mean, the idea behind these books yeah. is is buckle up because we're going on an adventure. And and by the way, we're going to lo- learn a lot of history along the way. But there's going to be some you know white knuckle ride. Hopefully, if I did my job, there's going to be some scenes that have you on the edge of your seat along the way. And hopefully you're going to be entertained and educated uh, at the end of the day, because that's the kind of books I like to read. So that's the kind of books I try to write. Okay. And okay, so the bat scene was uh, yeah, um, f- fictitious. Uh, uh, okay, but, you know the uh, you know, Roman coins aren't. But you know, you, you know, you also go into um, other aspects of history that are uh, <clears throat> well documented, such as the golden menorah, and that that's actually in. Yeah, you, know, you do. You know, let us clearly uh, know that. It's described in the book of Exodus in chapter 25. Yeah, so... Um, the lampstand. <laughs> so there's, you know, we, we know for a fact, like you just said, it's described in the, in the book of Exodus, and it also we uh, see it carved on something called the Arch of Titus uh, in, in Rome. Mm-hmm. The golden menorah, one, you know, one of the... When, when we talk about the Mount Rushmore of ancient artifacts that are lost to history that we want to find. You got the you got the Ark of the Covenant, you got the Holy Grail, you got the Golden Menorah. I don't know, what would be the fourth one? What if you had a fourth one? The the cross, you know, the cross that Jesus was cross was crucified on I, mean, I don't know what what the fourth one would be, but clearly the Golden Menorah along with the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail would be right up there. So what happened was mm-hmm. the Golden Menorah was was taken during the first destruction of the temple in around 70 AD and and it along with other temple treasures were marched through the streets of Rome and again there's a there's a great carving uh showing the menorah being carried by the by the Roman soldiers through the town uh it's something called the arch of Titus in Rome um but what happened to the to the menorah after that no one's really sure it sort of disappeared from history and you know, it's, some people think um, it was taken subsequently by um, other invaders in Rome. 
Um, some people think it may have been recovered and is was was hidden during the Bar Kopka uprising, okay? And and I talk about that. It might have been you know, sort of recaptured mm-hmm. and then hidden. And you know, was it was that one of the things that was talked about in the Copper Scroll of Qumran uh, as one of the temple treasures? Uh, perhaps it ended up in it stayed in Rome and the Vatican got its hands on it, and the, it might still be in the Vatican archives to this day. Or perhaps when the Roman Empire fell in what, 456, I'm going to have that date wrong, that, and who, Mark, who, 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 who invaded Rome? Was it the Vandals, finally, who came into Rome in the 5th century? I forget who it was, but maybe they took yeah, it. Maybe, maybe they found it. Yeah, so, it's, uh, uh, yeah, St. Augustine documents it as, you know, the Vandals or Goths, one of Yeah, so I, so I use this, I use the mystery of the Golden Menorah as one of the, uh, sort of triggers for the plot. Like, it, you know, it, it, that sort of becomes in play. Are we going to find the golden menorah? And I'm not going to give it away, obviously, as to whether we do or not in the book, but that becomes one of the things that uh, that triggers the plot, that moves the plot along, the, the, looking for this priceless artifact that, of course, is not only important for monetary reasons, uh, but also would be really important for symbolic reasons for Israel and religious reasons for any of the Abrahamic faiths, whether it's Judaism or Christianity or Islam. And so, you know, that sort of adds the international intrigue side to the story. Yeah. You know, it, well, you make the point that the golden menorah, you know, uh, tells you how to make, you know, how, how it's to be made in the book of Exodus. But um, that artifact is, uh, you know, h- helps to make Judaism ju- a, a uh, e- unique religion. It's, you know, just. That concept really isn't found in, um, um, you know, to say Buddhism. I, 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 this is an artifact that makes, um, it, it's just unique to, um, you know, the Hebrew people. Right, and it ties in. We talked earlier about the Hanukkah for it, and so. Right. You know, the golden the menorah is in many ways a symbol of Judaism. It's uh, Judaism is the only religion that celebrates Hanukkah and therefore has the symbol of the menorah. It, it, it's it's on the coat of arms of Israel, and so when we see this drawing of a fort shaped like a, a Hanukkah menorah in Ohio, drawn by the Army Corps of Engineers in 1823, you know, showing an ancient fort, it, it has to make people wonder, like. Was there some kind of ancient Jewish presence in that area? Because there's no way mm-hmm. a, a Christian, for example, although Christianity does share certain symbology with Judaism, obviously the Ten Commandments right. is, is a good example of that, they don't share the menorah. That's not part of Christianity. And so when you see a menorah, you know it's Jewish. It's not just maybe right. Jewish, maybe Christian, maybe Islamic. It's only Jewish. Um, and, and we talked uh, about Burroughs Cave, and I mentioned how I, I didn't think that those artifacts were fake because some of them reflect a sophistication 
of uh, knowledge of history, sophisticated knowledge of history, that would be really hard to know about in the 1970s. And in particular, there's a carving of a menorah that has a particular kind of base, a triangular base, that is unique to um, second century, first and second century uh, menorahs uh, in, in Israel at that time, that they didn't have triangular bases except for during that time period. So there's a Burroughs Cave carving of a menorah with a triangular base and also a, a wall carving on a tribe, uh, the Potawatomi tribe, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in Michigan, which also shows mm-hmm. a triangular base menorah. And again, we don't see that. that that's a, those are both really, it's a very narrow window of time during which the menorah had a triangular base. I just don't think Russell Burroughs, as a high school educated, he was a prison guard, um, a truck driver, would have known that in Israel during the first and second century, a menorah had a triangular base and not a flat base. I just don't think he would have known that. But we see that. So, but again, the, the, the big, the big, big picture here is that this menorah um, is is unique to Jewish symbology, and when we see it, you know, we sort of need to pay attention that that something might be going on there. No, I, I thought you made some uh, great points, and in your book also. Um, covers the uh, prophecies of the building of the third temple. And I thought that was interesting. And, you know, there's where you know, it kind of draws you know, the reader into um, the international intrigue that you usually include in your books with you know, this distinctly unique um you know, you know, like the uh, golden menorah, and you know, have the uh, building of the third temple prophecy, and you get you know the Vatican in there, uh, also saying that they have a claim on you know, the menorah. So, uh, um, but you know, how how does the um, uh, building of the third temple and the, the associated prophecies fit into Romerica. Right. So the the history of the temple. So the the first temple, the original temple of Solomon, was constructed. Mm-hmm. Eh, don't quote me. Right, eighth century BC, I believe, and it was destroyed <laughs> by the. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say yeah, yeah. I think you said uh, that that was in your book. It, it, it was. Really long ago, okay. Yeah, it might have been nine hundred, around nine hundred BC, eight hundred, nine hundred BC in that range. Uh, the Temple of Solomon, you know, famous that uh, you know God wouldn't let King David build it because David had blood on his hands, and eventually Solomon built it. And um, if if any of the listeners happen to be uh, Freemasons, obviously that's a big part of Masonic ritual and whatnot. It was built by uh, uh, King uh, Hiram Abiff. Um, the, the Phoenician uh, king, King Hiram, I'm sorry, and Hiram Abiff was the builder. But anyway, anyway, so it was built by the Phoenicians. But um, and then it was destroyed by the Babylonians in you know, 500 BC in that range, and then it was rebuilt by King Herod uh, 
who ruled during uh, the first century. Um, and it was that temple that was eventually uh, sacked the second time during the uprising, and the Romans destroyed it. That's when the, the, the golden menorah was carried out, again, around 70 A.D. Um, and it has never been rebuilt since. And part of the reason is that, you know, basically geopolitical realities, uh, the, 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 the Muslims in the interim had built the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount, and so there's really no practical way to, uh, you know, to build, uh, to knock those down or build over them or around them or anything. Um, but that doesn't stop, didn't, doesn't stop, didn't stop, and doesn't stop some religious Jewish groups from wanting to, from dreaming of building that third temple uh, back on top of the Temple Mount. And one of the reasons why. Um, some Jewish religious scholars think it should not happen or cannot happen is they don't believe you can have the third temple without the temple treasures. Well, if that golden menorah and other temple treasures were to be found, now it would open the door to building the temple. And you can imagine the, the, the conflagration that that might create in the Middle East if a group of, say, religious Orthodox Jews decided now is the time to rebuild the third temple. And of course, the the Arabs living in the Jew, in the Arab quarter in Jerusalem and worshiping at the Dome of the Rock would say, you're not building anything, guys. And, of course, you end up with a war again. So, you know, as, as if the Middle East needs any more reason to be at each other's throats. So that, that I sort of get into that in the book, again, as another uh, piece of, as you called it, international intrigue that sort of raises the stakes, raises the temperature, and and and... and and gives motivation to the characters. I think that it's important if you're writing, you know, a, a thriller or an action adventure story, and you want murder and mayhem, that can only really happen if the stakes are high. People tend not to do, you know, really violent things or really risky things over, you know, over a couple bucks or over, you know, over silly things. I mean, it happens occasionally, but generally speaking, if you're going to have that kind of murder and mayhem, you need to have high stakes. And so I always try to come up with some kind of geopolitical intrigue where the stakes are high, where groups like the Mossad care about what's going to happen and where the characters are really motivated because the stakes are so high. Yeah. You know, as we talk about uh, history tonight, I don't know. You know, you know, we're getting a uh, <clears throat> uh, wide sample of your interests. But it's all very exciting the way you present it. I have Mark. Uh, look, yeah. I have I have a lot of fun. This is a bit of a sidetrack, I know, but I really have a lot of fun researching these stories and then writing them. Um, you know, people ask which I prefer more, the research or the writing, and the truth is I find them both fascinating, the, the stumbling upon some of these ancient artifacts, and they're almost like an ancient jigsaw puzzle, finding enough pieces so that we can put them together and create a picture where none existed before, I, I just think yeah. that's so so cool to be able to look back in history, and then to be able to write uh, a story where um, this, is, this, this is sort of... Um, my style of writing is not the same as every author. Some authors like to really outline everything and script everything out, and, and, and then they write it. To me, 
I don't do it that way. I just sort of start writing, and I let the characters eventually carry the story wherever it's going to go. It's almost like having teenagers when you're a parent. You really, you did create them, but you really don't know what they're going to do, right? And so that's what it's like if 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 the story comes alive, the characters come alive, they carry the story. And as a as a writer, that's a really fun ride to be on. You almost switch over from being the creator to being the reporter. You're almost in a position of reporting on what your characters do. And they do some really surprising things, like teenagers. And sometimes they do infuriating things, like teenagers. But it's always interesting. And so that part of the process it doesn't always happen. Sometimes you sort of bog down and the story doesn't really flow well and you get a really, you know, like pulling teeth. But it, sometimes it really does happen. In this particular book, it did happen. And it was a really fun ride for me to go along with the characters on their adventure. So the research was fun and the writing was fun. And, uh, and boy, it just, it just, you know, I, I, I feel so fortunate that I stumbled upon this, these ancient artifacts and I'm able to write about them and enough people like to read the stories that I can make a living doing it. But it's a really fun way to, to get out of bed every day. You know, it's, it's, somebody said to me once, if you, if, you, if, you, if you love your work, you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that's so true. If you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. Cool. That's a great attitude to have. I know, I know, you, I know you, you love what you do, too. I mean, I know you, this, this is your passion. You enjoy this stuff. You enjoy, yeah. um, you know, talking about it and, 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 and being part of it. So, yeah, so it is, it, we, <laughs> we probably, we probably both like an extra zero at the end of our paycheck every week, but it's sure it's, it's, as long as we're doing okay, we have fun with it. So. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you know, it, it is fun. Uh, you know, dot, dotting the eyes, like he's said, it, it, it's making all the connections, but you know, so you know we've covered a lot of the Holy Land um, Roman information, but uh, Astarte brings a, a uh, Native American to. An already captivating story, and you know, she you know, she, she has uh, an international heritage as well that you know, uh, you know would appeal to uh, readers on you know wide variety of uh, readers. Um, yeah, she's. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I I had forgotten to to tie that in, but that's an important part of the story. So the characters are Cameron is a forty Cameron Thorne. He's forty five, forty six years old in in this story, and in previous books, he and his wife Amanda uh, had adopted a young uh, Native American uh, girl at the time. Uh, from the Mandan tribe. I won't get into how that all happened and what, why it happened, but she's now a freshman in college. And part of uh, the uh, big chunk of the book is Cam and Amanda driving across the Ohio River Valley on their way to Montana State University in, in Bozeman. 
and Amanda, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, Cameron and Astarte in, in Bozeman. And the reason Astarte wanted to do this drive is she wants to learn about her Mandan um, heritage. And we know the Mandan tribe when Lewis and Clark, there they are again, when they first met the Mandan, uh, would have been up in, the, up in the Dakotas. This would have been the early 1800s. But Mandan history tells us that prior to being uh, on the upper, upper Missouri River, they are, were living originally centuries earlier in the Ohio River Valley. And so Astarte wonders all along during the story. And, and the Mandan, by the way, were, were known to have European features, European um, features and appearance, but European-like uh, religious practices, other uh, attributes that early observers thought were not Native American, uh, that, that they were some, uh, some kind of European origin. And so the Mandan were called the White Indians, as a matter of fact. And so uh, Astarte all along is wondering, you know, are these Roman explorers, are they my ancestors? Are they the original genesis of the Mandan tribe? Did they come over here and either... Uh, mix in with the Native Americans and produce the Mandan tribe, or perhaps the Mandan tribe is is really just the residue of these Roman explorers, probably the first more than the second. I mean, at some point, it's going to be into marriage. But she's basically on a journey of discovery as they're looking at these artifacts, trying to figure out if these people are her ancestors. And so that's an important part of the story. And, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a theme that's been carried through from from the second book in the series, Thief on the Cross, when we first meet a start day as a little five-year-old girl, uh, six-year-old girl, I forget what, five or six-year-old girl, and, and, um, and she has a prophecy that she was born with that she's supposed to lead the, be the sort of the spiritual leader of, of the Native American tribes in America, and, and I get into that in and out of different books, but the prophecy is not so important in this book as much as her trying to figure out her heritage that becomes an important motivating factor for her as we go through the story. Yeah, and you know, like you said, Thomas Jefferson was uh, uh, very interested in the Mandan tribe, but you know, there that element of um, oral history and you know, folklore, you know, whatever you want to term you want to use but there really does seem to be uh, some type of truth or real event once you peel away all the layers of embellishment over time uh, from the folklore story there, there seems to be something there and you know maybe with the these mandan uh legends uh you know we do find evidence that welsh uh you know europeans uh you know were uh here you know long enough to uh marry into some of the native tribes right so you mentioned a couple of things so you mentioned thomas jefferson he himself was of Welsh uh, heritage, and so right. he was. He he believed the whole legend, or he was curious about the Mandan legend, the the White Indians, the Welsh Indians, and so he sent Lewis and Clark up 
to find them and investigate. But again, when we talk about Welsh, remember this Ninth Legion would have been partly Welsh. It would have been comprised of many Welsh soldiers. So that fits in together. Um, soon after Lewis and Clark went up looking for these, looking for the media, you know, encountering the Mandan and reporting back to Jefferson, a guy named uh, George, I think his first name was George Catlin, was a, who was a chronicler yeah. of Native American life. He went and lived with the them painter. for a while. And, and let me, if I could read what he wrote, it's fascinating because he first he noticed how that they were the only tribe that used stretch, stretched animal skins to build their canoes, which that mirrors the, the style used in, in the British Isles. Um, you know, in fact, uh, uh, Tim Severin uh, sailed one of those mm-hmm. boats across from uh, Ireland to Newfoundland to prove the Brendan the Navigator legend, <laughs> you know, from the, like, the 5th century, 6th century. But anyway, so Catlin wrote, uh, quote, I am fully convinced that they, the Mandan, have sprung from some other origin other than the other American tribe, Native American tribes. A stranger in the Mandan village is first struck with the different shades of complexion and various colors of hair, which he sees in a crowd about him, and is at once almost disposed to exclaim, these are not Indians. There are a great many of these people whose complexion appear as light as half-breeds. Among the women particularly, there are many whose skins are almost white, with hazel, with gray, and with blue eyes. So again, he goes and he talks about not just their appearance, but but um, their 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 lifestyle, some of their religious practices, um, their culture, and it's fascinating. And again, so Jefferson was interested in this. Uh, it ties back again to Lewis and Clark, and so you can you can see why Astarte, who is of Mandan heritage, by the way, most of the Mandan were wiped out by a smallpox outbreak in the uh, early to mid 1800s, but there's a few survivors but you can see why she um you know being a high school uh, sorry college freshman at that age trying to figure out her own heritage is intensely curious about these artifacts and the history that they find along the way on their journey uh across the Ohio River Valley and then eventually up the Missouri to Montana yeah and yeah, um you don't go in, into you know, the use of language much in America. You, you, know, you did with uh, Echoes of Atlantis, but you, you know, you're one of the few authors that actually goes into using uh, language to prove you know, a point that they're uh, was another culture, you know, that came later, and uh, they all mixed together, you know, so, so, something like that. And you, and you, in Echoes of, Echoes of Atlantis, you went uh, went into the Basque language, but yeah, you know, there, right. there is that element of research that you go, uh, do present in your books that be ignored well so i didn't do as much of it on this one because have you ever tried to read welsh oh my gosh but <laughs> it's, it's, no. it's hard to, it's hard to, but you but you're right um there there was um there there's a there's a little bit of there there's an ancient welsh script on um uh, on the something called the brandenburg stone which i talked about a little bit before 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the translations of that stone is uh, it, it's basically a sort of a, a division of land or a boundary marker, and so that's that that's consistent with um, Welsh and, and British Isle practices. But you're right, as far as actually using um, linguistics, which I have done in other books. Um, my daughter happens to be really interested in linguistics, so she helps me with that sometimes. But yeah, I, I didn't do as much of that with this one. Again, mostly because the Welsh language is just so hard to, to, to de- decipher. Oh my gosh! But I, I am fascinated. So I think I think it was Echoes of Atlantis, which you mentioned. But some of the some of the language that the that the the, the medieval Catholic Church sort of used to promote their agenda. So, for example. Um, the word uh, lunar, as most people know, is associated with the female because the, the menstrual cycle matches the lunar cycle. And so the, from there we jump off into the medieval church thought, you know, women were a little bit unstable, a little bit crazy. And from that we end up with the word lunacy being associated not just with with women particularly, but with the lunar cycle, because it's a, it's a female thing, lunacy, just like the moon is a female thing, lunar. And so you see a lot of evidence of, of as medieval, as the language evolved during medieval times, a lot of that sort of stuff. I think that's what you're talking about, and I am interested in, in exploring those things, and, and, uh, and I do find that stuff fascinating. Yeah, it, yeah the, um, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence was uh, I think he was born in Wales, and I don't think emig- you know, his family emigrated here. Uh, I don't know when it was seventeen forties or so, I, I don't know. Uh, but he, uh, he he was held uh, captive uh, for a, a, a little while by. Uh, one of the uh, uh, Pennsylvania native tribes, and he uh, he said that he could um, understand what they were saying. Right. So that yeah. So that there's that. Yeah, uh, I, I forget which, which I I have the uh, so someone goes on a rant. Uh, I could get the book. You know, it's just right behind me. Uh, it, it, it was, it's, it's, but uh, the guy's name George George Sevier S E V I E R. I might have I might have that wrong actually, but um, I I I don't know. I uh, you know, anyway, uh, the, you want the, the big point is it. If right. you want to read more, uh, go ahead and read more poetry or something. I'll, I'll get the book. I'll be right back. Hold, and I'll, I'll try to find his name. Yeah, actually, well, I'll, I'll just to continue. David? Yes, hi Barbara. Hi. Yes, David. Hi. Yes, I do. Are you aware of the real reason that Jefferson sent um, the guys out looking for Welsh-speaking Indians? Well, he himself was Welsh, so that had something to do with it. Um, but you have no. something else to do <laughs> I do. Um, Go ahead. Before Spain and France and England um, started on their explorations to claim new lands, there was a papal bull that was issued, and they were told explicitly that they could they could claim any land they uh, found. You're going only back to the John, if, the John you're going back to the John D stuff, right? Oh, oh, no, only if there were no um, Christians living in that area. 
Right, right. So Jefferson had heard about possibly Welch Indians because if the Welch were here before, then the English didn't have claim to the country. Therefore, they couldn't sell the country or free it. Right. This goes back to John D. and Elizabethan. He was an advisor to Queen Elizabeth in the 1580s. He came up with this whole idea that the Welsh, this goes back to Prince Madoff, that the Welsh had settled um, in the New World and that therefore England had a right to, um, this was again before the pilgrims came over, but England had a right uh-huh. to North America because the Welsh had been here. This is the, the Prince Madoff legends. Um, and so, yes, you're right. Jefferson was trying to, uh, A, I think he had a personal interest in it, but you're right, B, it would have been a lot easier to, to take that land as opposed to have to buy it from France and the Louisiana Purchase if he could show that there were you know, some kind of English or Welsh um, settlers in, in, right. in that area. And it would have been what we call today the Dakotas or Montana, up the upper, upper Missouri River. Um, that's a very good point. He, he okay. also I do, I do have one more thing on the language. I don't know if Mark is back, but on the... Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm the, here. All right, the whole lunacy thing. The other part about that is the word S-I-N, sin, is the Babylonian word for moon, and so therefore a sinner is also a moon worshiper or a goddess worship. So again, that same that same use of language to demonize behavior we don't like, to demonize the female um, that, that that just I just wanted to finish that thought we talked about it and I wanted to circle back to it so, uh, but Barbara Barbara you're you're um, I never I never put those two I never put two and two together I knew about the John D Welsh thing and I, of course I knew about Jefferson's interest but I never put two and two together and that's an obvious that's an obvious thing I should have seen thank you for pointing that out that's a good point you're welcome. <laughs> you always have. I don't know if the listeners care. The listeners have no idea how often Barbara helps you with plot ideas. I mean, she's like the most valuable, you know, most valuable player in some of my books. So if if the books are good, you can thank Barbara. If the books are bad, you could say that was one that Barbara didn't help on. That's what we'll do, huh? Oh yeah, I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay, Mark, did you uh, find did, your your find? We looking y- for? Yes, it it was. The signer was Francis Lewis of New York. Okay. And it says during the French and Indian War, he was a uh, agent uh, to supply the British troops with clothing uh, while on some mission. uh, mission. In 1756, he was captured by the French. Legend has it that he said, that he saved his scalp from the Indian allies of the French because the Indians believed he was speaking their tongue when he talked to them in his native Welsh. So, okay, if we're going back to 1756, and it seems like there is – the natives understand – the Welsh language. The at some point the Welsh uh, the like Gaelic language had to have come to uh, America's shores. I mean, it's su- such a right. unique 
right. sounding language that yeah you, you just don't make you don't make up those uh, sounds. Yeah, it's a tough language. So if they, if they yeah. understood it, <laughs> they're better men than I because I don't understand it. But yeah, uh, the 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 point, and again, it's it's again, I go back to my legal training on this that it's really hard to win a case with just one or two pieces of evidence unless they're really compelling. And so that in and of itself is probably not enough to convince people that the Welsh, the ancient Welsh were here. But when you start having, you know, eight or ten artifacts and a bunch of coins and stories like that and the appearance of the Mandan uh, uh, tribe and the fact that they make the, their, their boats the same way that the, they do in the British Isles. And, and just, this, again, this accumulation of evidence. At some point, you just start saying to yourself, look, this is not the way the world works. This all doesn't just happen by coincidence, that much um, similarity. It just can't all be coincidence. Uh, common sense just takes over. I had a law professor who used to say, you know, the most important tool that you bring into the courtroom is your common sense. And And so I think... You know, readers understand that, that that they understand the way the world works. And I think what we find here in in what I hope I showed in this book is that there are so many pieces of evidence. So we haven't really even talked about all the different coins that were found. We didn't talk about, for example, the Roman anchor that was found. Uh, let's talk about that for a sec. So, so this is, we talked okay. about um, Lee Pennington. One of the things that, that he found, along with a guy named Bruce Grimes, they're, they're active in, I think it's Kentucky, researching all this stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a, 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 a giant stone anchor with a, a hole in it. It's, it's triangular shaped. It's almost the size of a trash can, you know, a, 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 a you find in a park, and it was found, this is the interesting thing, it matches in style other Mediterranean anchors from the Roman era, okay? But what's interesting about this one is it was found about a quarter mile away from the river. And so people are like, well, how could that be? Why would you have an anchor a quarter mile away from the river? Well, it turns out that one of the things that they did the colonists did when they when they first started settling along the Ohio River Ohio River is they redirected the flow of this particular river near the anchor and moved it about a quarter mile into a different path and so this anchor lies in the historic bed of the river not the colonial era bed of the river so the anchor obviously was left there in pre-colonial times it just fit together really nicely once you realize the original flow, the original path of the river. So again, Roman era anchor in the ancient path of the river. It just you know you have to have an explanation for it. What else could it be? So it's just stuff like that. Um, and you know I didn't find any of the stuff. It's it's people like Lee Pennington and Bruce Grimes who are doing the research. I'm just piggybacking off of their research and trying to put the pieces together, but. Um, there's, there sure is a lot of it. Yeah, it, 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 you have a photo of it on page 57. There's a hole drilled through the top of it, you know, obviously for you know the rope to be tied to it. Um, That's huge. I mean, the thing is massive. Yeah. It's not the type of thing people do just for for fun. It would have taken you know four or five guys to carry the damn thing. It's I don't know how much it would have weighed. I, I forget if I put in there the estimated weight or something like that. But uh, did I, Mark? I forget. You're on the page right now, aren't you? Did I put the weight on there? Um, Probably not. I don't but. think the weights. I don't think the weights on 
56 or 57. Yeah, no. There, there's a formula. It's like uh, per square, f- per per cubic foot, how much a stone weighs, and I knew it at one point, but it doesn't matter. It's big. It's yeah, oh, we don't do we don't do math on night lights. So. <laughs> Look, you make you almost made me do Gaelic, buddy. If you're gonna make me do Gaelic, I'm gonna make you do math. <laughs> Jeez. Now, uh, um, now you do have the size of the. Uh, you know, it's, uh, tr- it's nearly the size of a trash can. Right. About where it's located, uh, I'm not. I, I, I can keep looking for the. No, no, it's okay. Uh, it's weight, fine. But doesn't doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's heavy. We'll just say heavy. Big, big and heavy. So mm-hmm. uh, that's all we need to know. Doesn't matter if it's the point. The point being is is these things don't just. They're not casually created or casually moved or casually left. That there's usually some kind of significance behind them. People don't do that just for fun. Life back then was, you know, it was too hard to be dragging around, you know, thousand pound stone anchor okay. for no reason. It is on page fifty-eight that you note that it weighs four hundred pounds. Oh, there we go. I got it. Okay, I did have it. <laughs> Only four hundred. I would have thought it would be even heavier, but okay, whatever. So good, four hundred pounds. So it would probably take at least three guys to move around. Anyway, what else you got, buddy? What else you want to talk about? Um, you must, you must have. You always have a lot of questions. So let's see what. Um, I, I thought it, Romerica was really um, a very enjoyable. Novel, uh, great, fits in perfectly with uh, your series, um, and you leave it open for a part two. <laughs> and you know, I think you should do a, a part two, you know, called like Claudio America. Matthias gets caught up in some kind of laptop scandal and Astarte needs to decompress or something. You know, so, so she goes, <laughs> so I, did, I, did, goes I did start. So my tradition is every year on January 1st, I start a new novel and, and I, uh, the goal is to write one year. I was actually able to write two last year because of the pandemic and, you know, being cooped up mm-hmm. as much as I was, I was able to finish two entire books, which was great. But I started again on January 1st. Um, as a matter of fact, Barbara had a really good suggestion for one of the sort of the plot lines, um, and uh, you know I've got I've got a Starte uh, uh, with some of her Native American prophecy stuff going again, and of course Cam is Cam's on the run, and he's actually down in in North Carolina now on a road trip, the fictional Cam, a fictional character, and and I found some good stuff there, but so I'm not gonna, I'm not going to do a sequel of Romerica yet, but. You know, oh. the characters the, the characters the characters circle back in and out. You'll see there was a, there's a character in Romerica, uh, a Mossad agent named Rivka. She'll circle back in and out. She'll be back in a little bit for this book, and we'll see how that goes. But um, it's fun it's fun to have these characters that are recurring once in a while. Um, and then and then the other thing we haven't really talked about much, but I, one of the things I was I was really pleased with, and I don't want to give it away to the listeners, but there was a, a fun little twist. 
there was a, a legal hearing in front of the Underwater Archaeology Board. Do you remember that scene, Mark? Yeah, at, at the um, – is that the one at the Falls of Ohio? No, there was a hearing in Boston in front of the Underwater Archaeology oh, oh, okay. Board, uh, jurisdiction over the shipwreck, and I had a really fun little oh. legal twist in there, and I don't want to give it away, but be- because – because I'm a lawyer by training, I, I like to do some some legal things, some legal angles, and 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 oftentimes my plots turn on you know real estate scams or leak. This was a really fun little legal trick. Do you know what I'm trying to talk about, Mark? With the with the the, the jurisdiction over the um, over the shipwreck. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I don't want to give yeah, it away, but. I, it was, I, don't, I want. I want yeah, to hear yeah. if you thought it was fun. I want to hear if you liked it or not. Basically, I was. I was fishing for a compliment there, yes. buddy. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was yeah, fun. no, I, I, I liked it, and yeah. When, when I amuse, when I amuse myself, I, you know, that's usually a good thing. When I, when I, uh, especially with the, with the little, you know, sneaky lawyer tricks, I always think those are fun. So. No, it, 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 you know, you, you you do have those little. You work in those legal. Uh, twist things. It makes for the uh, surprise endings, but you, you, know, you have all these things, you know, subplots, and characters that you know come in and out of the uh, story. Do you, do you find it a challenge when you do the denouement where? You, you know, you, you have to make sure that all the strands of the story are unraveled, and you know the book comes to uh, some kind of logical end. Um, the second part—that's not hard. The logical end. I mean, obviously, I'm writing towards an end. The the sort of the 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 loose ends. You know, making sure that everything's tied up, making sure that everything's consistent at the end. That can mm-hmm. be a little bit, um, you know, that, that's why um, you have something called beta readers. So the, the process I use to write the story is um, I write about, say, uh, about, mm, 75 to 100 pages which is about a, a book's about 300 pages. So I write about 75 to 100 pages and give it to my wife, who's a really good editor and a really good eye for this stuff. And and thankfully, our our our, our marriage relationship is strong enough so that I can take her criticism and, and not take it personally. But I give it to her, and she basically goes through and, and gives me very candid feedback as to what works and what doesn't work. Uh, and so then I'll write another 50 or 75 pages, and she and I go back and forth on this um, five or six times. So she. You know, she's got the worst part of this job. She's got to read sometimes the same pages six times. But by the end of the story, she's read it through, you know, the ending only one or once or twice, but the beginning many times. By the time she's done, you know, I've got a pretty good idea what works and what doesn't work. The problem is she's read it so many times that she might have lost track, just like I've lost track of things that I thought I dealt with or things that I changed and need to deal with. And so the next step after that is to give it out to somewhere between 10 and 20, I call them beta readers, everyone calls them beta readers, and those are basically people whose opinions 
I respect who are interested in, in, in reading, who are very careful readers and candid readers, and I give it to them and ask for feedback. And, you know, once I gave it to my mother, and, of course, you know, mothers don't like to criticize their kids, and she had nothing negative to say. And I said, you know, thanks a lot, Mom, but that really doesn't help me very much. This is a time when I need you to be critical and tell me, you know, that doesn't work or you left a loose end or you need to fix this. So I, I found a good group of people who are candid and careful and critical and whose opinions I respect, and, and they tell me things like, you know, you got a loose end here or you really didn't provide enough character motivation for that or I saw that coming a mile away, you need to hide it better. Or, you know what, that, that scene on page 220 that went on for three or four pages, it really dragged. You've got to cut that back. Or That kind of stuff really can help because the story not only has to work you know, as, as a story hold together, but pacing's important. Um, the, there's a, almost always a mystery in these stories, and mm-hmm. ideally... Ideally, you want your reader to say, oh, I should have seen that coming. Well done, author. You don't want the reader to say, what? That came out of the blue. That wasn't fair. Or, oh, that was, that was obvious. I saw that coming a mile away. What you really want to do is have the reader say, oh, yeah, well done. I should have seen that coming. I see. You know, you want to have enough uh, foreshadowing and enough evidence sort of scattered through the story that the reader doesn't feel cheated. But again, you don't want it to be so obvious. And that's where these beta readers come in really handy is, is I say to them periodically on the way, so, you know, what do you think is going to happen? Or did you see it coming? Or, you know, did it work for you? And then after that feedback comes, then I make whatever tweaks are needed. And now we're finally in final version and we can go to print. Um, so that, that, that denouement question about, you know, having everything wrapped up at the end. Usually, if I if I've messed that up, one of the beta readers will have caught that, and so hopefully there's you know hopefully there's no loose ends. Hopefully there's no uh, inconsistencies in the plot. Um, if there are, you know, bad on me. But um, you know, that, that's how that usually gets caught. What did, have any of the uh, beta readers uh, recommended that? Astarte fall in love with uh, a podcaster you know, who's really you know, handsome and you know, dashing and all that. Uh, yeah, it, but we can't, we can't seem to find the, a good role model for that. We can't seem to find a handsome, dashing podcaster. It's just those. It's almost like they don't exist. I, I can't imagine why that would be, Mark. Huh, I don't know. I, yeah, I could, I, <laughs> well, I, also, I, I Mark, thinking, she, she's a little young for you, buddy. I gotta say. Oh well, she's in college. But, yeah, it's like it, it would be a good scene with like Cam hates him because he's like, you know, when he gets his six hundred dollar uh, Rona check, it, that's yeah, you know, six hundred times more than he's going to make. Uh, you know, being a podcaster, how's he going to support you know your <laughs> royal heritage? Yeah, you know, it, it'd be a you know run. You might want to run that by the uh, uh, beta readers. Beta readers, okay. I'll, I'll hey, I did want to mention this, one more thing because at the very beginning of the interview we talked about Rick Osman, and I happened to just pull his book down. So he he wrote this book. What year? What the heck year did he write this? At least ten years ago. Um, yeah, it was twenty eleven. Okay, tell us about. So at, in, in the acknowledgments at the end, he wrote uh, David Brody, 
there is still potential for some great thriller fiction in here. Uh, and thanks for helping out. So basically, even back then, so ten years ago, or when he, when he you know first wrote this nine ten years ago, he was already telling me, hey, there's there's a good uh, there's a good historical fiction story in this, and it took me that long to to come around to actually focus on it and and, and dive deep enough into to take him up on it. But I do want to thank Rick because again, it's the story piggybacks off of off really his research and his his ninth legion research that uh, that he did way back then. Um, so again, I don't know if I have the story exactly right. Uh, I did that little detour over to Israel with the Ninth Legion, but I, I think that, that that sort of makes, in my mind, that that holds everything together. That's a key piece of this. That explains, you know, not only were the Romans here, but there's, there's so many artifacts that it had to be a fairly large contingent of, contingency of them um, to, to justify all the artifacts, not just because they're scattered. I mean, there's some on the in New England, there's some in the Ohio River Valley, there's some we talked about down in Brazil, there's some in Mexico. If in order to account for all of the artifacts, there had to be you know a decent number of trips back and forth, um, which makes sense. I think once once people stumble their way across, or or they are or if they happen to you know have a Phoenician sea captain who was who was captured. Maybe the Phoenician sea captain had been across and would tell them how to get there. But the point being, people who did come across would have kept it secret. You know, I get the question all the time, well, how come nobody knows about these, these journeys, these ancient journeys? And again, the answer is secrecy. If you were a, take the Phoenicians, for example, um, it was not uncommon for a Phoenician sea captain who was being pursued by the enemy to run his ship ashore on the rocks and, and drown the crew rather than give away the Phoenician trade secrets, the trade routes, the trading partners, because there was such an economic advantage that they had, they didn't want their enemies to be able to compete with them. And so if, if ancient Romans did find their way across and they were trading with the natives, they were mining copper or other minerals, they perhaps were finding gold, they were, they were fishing, they were... Uh, beaver hides, whatever it was, there was economic advantage associated with that. Or perhaps they were hiding from their enemies in Europe, there, as the Templars were in, in mm-hmm. later years. There were economic advantages to that. And so the, those secrets were were kept and maintained, and they were not written about. And that's why we don't have recorded history of these trips back and forth. Um, again, you, you don't tell people where your favorite fishing hole is. It's your favorite hole for a reason. You want to keep it secret. And so that's, that, in my mind, that fits together. That, that sort of makes sense. But it, it only makes sense in, in, in the Roman artifact side of things if we had more than just one or two trips back and forth. There had to be sort of regular trips. But again, I think it's clustered in the second century because that's where the artifacts generally are clustered. Okay. And with um, you know, the copper scroll of Qumran, Qumran, yeah, that you, uh, yeah, uh, you, you mentioned that that's where uh, we know all the artifacts that were uh, stored in the. Uh, temple and you know the Ark of the Covenants mentioned in um, uh, the, uh, the uh, Old Testament. Um, 
Yeah, yeah it, so what happened, it, it, let's, let's, let's explain that before we gloss over that, and then I'll let you ask your question. Okay. The Copper Scroll of Qumran, basically, so that so the, the, the Israelites, the Jews, they, they're, they're revolting, and they know that at some point the Romans are going to come and try to put down the revolt. So they take all the treasures out of the Temple of, the temple of Solomon, the, the Temple in Jerusalem. Again, it's been about, oh, about 60 years since they rebuilt, so they've, they've been able to to rebuild and 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 gather their treasures again, and they say, well, we're not going to leave them in the temple for the Romans to to get when they come and squash us, and so they hide them according to this copper scroll in 64 different locations, and they're and they're basically common locations in the like the the laundry bin and underneath the stairs here. It's all very colloquial. It's almost like saying, you know, down down by the you know, by the by the by the gas station uh, in the, next to the tree below the stone wall, okay, it's stuff like that, which wouldn't mean anything today, but back then, of course, it did. And there were two copies of this the scroll. One of them was found, you know, in the, in the mid 20th century out in the desert. Uh, this copper scroll. The other one we think was probably kept, and that's how when the Israelites escaped with, under my theory, with the treasure, it would have been that list that they used to find the treasure in the laundry room and beneath the stone wall, whatever, and took a cross. But according to uh, the author who wrote this this Copper Scroll of Qumran book, whose name I I forget, uh, which I can get for you, is Feather, a guy named Feather. Um, There's about $1.5 billion worth of treasure in that, described in that scroll so no one's ever found that you know again some point you know they, they they've they've got they've got the 64 locations some of which obviously are obscure but some of which are, are, are identifiable even today it's all gone so something happened to that treasure so that's sort of the background of the copper skull of krumon uh, and there's a cool picture of it in in, in my book um and by the mm-hmm. way just for the readers who haven't read my stuff before even though it's fiction i do include images of the artifacts and the sites, just because I think that it's important that readers understand when I'm talking about these artifacts and these sites and the artwork, that it's real stuff. I'm not making that up. The book is fiction, but the, again, the history behind it is not. So you don't have to go to the right. internet looking for the stuff. You can just, it's right there on the page, which I think is helpful. But anyway, it, so I interrupted you. The, you. You had a question about the Qumran scroll. It, yeah, it, you know, okay, so we have, when in like an inventory of uh, uh, the temple and in your uh, treasure templari uh, book uh, that uh, came out last year. Uh, you know, there's another list of uh, more artifacts from uh, the Holy Land and the Spear of Destiny um, what, what I found interesting about uh, those two books is that the treasures that you know came out of uh, Jerusalem have really been. Um, uh, marvels of the world 
it just it just really uh you know they really capture uh you know the viewers uh imaginations from you know you know the first Indiana Jones movie right. or your books or yeah, it's it, really something about, about magical the, yeah the whole um the mount rushmore of of lost treasures and they right. and and they all tend to be biblical, or most of them tend to be biblical, because there's there's something magical, like you said. Hitler. So in Treasure Templare, for example, um, Hitler was obsessed with finding the Templar treasure because he believed that it was uh, that that some of these treasures, like the Spear of Destiny, uh, could be and, and the Holy Grail could be used, could be weaponized. He actually believed that they had magical powers and could be weaponized. So he was – the Treasure Templari novel talks about how the, there was a, a, a painting in, in Ghent in Belgium called the Ghent Altarpiece, and it has a number of different paintings comprised uh, um, in, one, in one giant – it's called a triptych, an altarpiece. But one of the paintings, uh, Hitler believed, was a secret map leading to the Templar treasure, the Holy Grail, the lost Templar treasure. And um, like you said, Mark, these treasures, you know, in addition to having monetary value and historic value, they have religious value, and perhaps, according to Hitler and and, and others, they have supernatural powers. You know, the Fountain of Youth, Hitler believed that that potentially he could live forever if he found the Holy Grail, it was the Fountain of Youth. And this kind of stuff has, you know, incredible allure. And this goes back and, and... you mentioned that my my series of books is called the Templars in America series, and in, in Romerica I don't go too far into the Templars. I touch on them a little bit, but a little bit. But most of my books focus largely on the Knights Templar. And one of the key questions that continually we ask about the Templars is what was it that they found in Jerusalem when they were excavating beneath the Temple Mount? in the early days of their existence, in the early parts of the 12th century, somewhere, you know, in the 11, early 1100s, what did they find? They found something that they were able to parlay and leverage into incredible wealth and incredible power. And the leading candidate for what they found was the treasures that were hidden from the Romans during the either the, the original uprising in 70 A.D. or the Bar Kopka uprising in 132 A.D., that the temple treasures, including potentially the Ark of the Covenant, whatever else you think might have been under there, that they, that they hid them and that the Templars excavated down beneath and found them. And maybe they were not those things I mentioned. Maybe instead they were ancient writings of Christianity. Maybe there was a marriage contract between... Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Maybe there was ancient uh, secrets of the ancient world, navigational secrets or technological secrets of Atlantis. I mean, who knows what it might have been under there. Whatever it was, they were able to take it back to Europe and leverage it into uh, into great power so that within 10 or 20 years of, of the order being founded, they had become one of the most important and powerful entities in all of Europe, in all of Christendom. And so something they found made them really powerful. And then within 200, about 200 years after they were founded, that same something, whatever it was, 
cause the church to turn on them and outlaw them and crush them and and basically end their reign. But whatever those two things were, I think they were probably the same thing. We don't really know what it was. And, you know, that, that just captures people's imagination. It was a treasure. Yeah. What kind of treasure? You know, where is it now? Is it... Did the Templars bring that treasure even after they were crushed? Did they bring it to America? Did they hide it here? Yeah, maybe. Hitler thought maybe. Yeah. So, who knows? Okay, yeah, uh, Dave, we're down about two minutes left. Wow, already. Um, okay. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, uh, that uh, you know re- really se- seems like you know we've only been doing this for about uh, thirty minutes, but uh, it, it's it been a lot of fun. I still think. You need a character named Marcus Edwards as the <laughs> podcaster, but uh, uh, you know we'll we'll keep working on that. But uh, yeah, um, do you have anything else coming up? Uh, TV shows, anything uh, you can promote? I, I know book signings are kind of out. Book signings are definitely out. I'll tell you that. But no, I'm doing. You know, I'm doing a lot of these radio talks. I think um, I uh, I've been really happy with the response to Romerica so far. So if if listeners, it's a good one. Yeah, I really thank you. I appreciate. It. If, if listeners want to jump in on the series, I would suggest either jumping in at the beginning, which is Cabal the Western Night, or um, jumping in at the end, right at Romerica. I mean, all these books are standalone, but um, you can jump in any place you want, of course. But I would say readers would would enjoy if they enjoyed tonight's conversation would enjoy Romerica. I try to keep these books really uh, affordable. So if you want to buy the paperback version it's 15 bucks. If you want to buy it on Kindle it's less than 5 bucks. You know, I, I the the goal for me in writing these is to get them out there is to get people talking about them to to you know to sort of move the needle on this uh ancient history and 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 try to get people thinking, open their minds to the possibility of exploration prior to Columbus. So I, I want these to be accessible. I don't want it to be really expensive. But, um, you know, and obviously, if you, if you, hopefully if you like one or two of them, you'll, you'll read more in the series. And, and uh, But, I, you know, I try to make them fun. You know, I, 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 you can tell by the passion in my voice, boy, do I love this stuff. So I, I hope readers will, will share in that passion and, and go on the journey with me. And thank you for okay. having me and tonight. It's always it's always be great to be on your show. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they can find out more about you at davidbrodybooks.com. Yep, and and yeah. you can get the books on Amazon and Kindle. That's probably the easiest way to get them. Um, but yeah, davidbrodybooks.com. B R O D Y. You'll see all the books there and click through. Leave it to Amazon, Kindle, and and my email address is on there too. Feel free to reach out. I love to hear from readers. What you know, what they think. Um, what they like, what they didn't like. It's always good to get feedback. Okay. Uh, I I think that's about a wrap. And uh, th- thank you so much. And uh, uh, Barbara, you can uh, cl- close up the show. Thank you. And good, good night, everyone. We'll see you next week.